Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and I'll be here with you until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, anti-GM activist Jessica Harrison talking about her time in Berlin and taking part in political actions during her two weeks in England, which followed her time in Germany. Why you should be part of the counter-mobilisation against the far right on Saturday the 18th of July, I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan. US activist Martha Hensey talks about her grandmother, Dorothy Day, who began the Catholic worker movement in New York during the Great Depression and Martha's work as a peace activist since then. And, of course, before that, let's have Mr Kevin Healy and see how the week has been for him. A week, Jade Listener, when our great political leaders met with 40 terra nullius people chosen, who knows how, to represent the non-existent terra nullius people to discuss whether those who followed the 1788 first boat people should vote to decide whether the whether true blue Aussie was terra nullius and not true blue Aussie, or whether just maybe there were terra nullius people in not true blue Aussie, when we've always assumed they were parvenus threatening to steal our land to steal our backyards, bludges on the goodness of those who followed the first boat people. I raise this because there is, to use the jargon, a sticking point in these discussions. See, people could just vote to recognise that then not true blue Aussie might just have been occupied by these terrenulous people, put down the pencil, leave the polling booth and feel good. But there's this push to go further, to also vote to remove racial discrimination, racist laws in the Constitution to ensure terrenulous non-people cannot be discriminated against, outlawing sensible laws to assist these non-people like intervention or even, heaven forbid, prevent 2% of the population representing most of the prison population. This parliamentary committee reported the race question does have to be dealt with if the change is to be more than symbolic. Now, some long-haired commie greenie wooden work in an iron simpletons might think that's a no-brainer, just vote to outlaw legal racial discrimination. But as the sensible centre people point out, it's never that simple. Take big supremo tiny a bit more for the boss's parliamentary secretary for terra nullius affairs, Alan Fudge the Facts, who said banning racial discrimination, direct quote, would be difficult to achieve. He didn't explain why, but we must take Alan's word for it, and he was backed up by no lesser humanitarian and anti-discrimination advocate as former Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, and now Minister for Social Insecurity Scuttled Them More Lash Son, who said the process needs to continue to be very, very careful. If it goes too far, it has no chance of succeeding. And banning racism would be going too far, Scuttle them. Look, some of my best friends are not racist, but I simply warn that we need to be very, very careful. 
endorsing his leader's view that we must consult and consult and consult so we get it right. Recognising Terranulia's people is the right thing to do. The right thing to do. But this banning racism bit needs a lot more consideration. A lot more consideration. And Alan and Scuttle them and Tiny were backed up by former Socialist Party National Supremo Warren Munn done them in. A Terranilius person who represents all Terranilius non-people, just ask him, who told Lord Rupert of Wapping's unbiased objective pay telly news a constitutional guarantee on racial non-discrimination, direct quote again, could lead to ongoing legal disputes lasting for hundreds of years. Goodness me, they'd have to get a very young judge to ensure she or he sees it out. Banning racism was a walkabout judicial notion that risks taking the debate in the wrong direction. We've got to avoid arguing for the rest of the next 500 to 600 years over what words mean. We've got to keep it very simple. Yeah, it must be difficult to understand what racism means. Still have to concede one point to Warren. When we're dealing with Alan and Scuttle them and Tiny and Lord Rupert for that matter, we do have to keep it very simple. With friends like Warren, the non-Terranilius people certainly don't need enemies like the National Congress of True Blue Aussies First People, who gave them a right to speak on their behalf. They've got Warren and Noel. What more do they need? Anyway, they said, changing the clauses that allow race discrimination is really the substance of the referendum and what our people are hoping to see in it. What would they know? What ingratitude? Didn't they hear Alan say banning racism would be difficult to achieve? Scuttle them warning them to be very, very careful? Warren worried we'd spend five to six hundred years arguing over a word? So there we are. Despite the long-haired commie greenies, it's just not as simple as saying no to racism. On complications, the just-as-naive Greek people did say no, showing how simple they are. As the Greek people's hands shook over the ballot papers, they had to weigh up the big choices. We must choose between death on the one hand, or on the other hand, um, uh, death. Despite the string of so-called experts on the left of left ABC last week predicting the yes vote would win overwhelmingly, no guesses who the ABC's interviewees represented, the bloody people got it wrong again. They just can't seem to get democracy right. Despite the great benefits, several years of austerity have bought them. Well, we knew it would because the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all knew it was for their own good, and own good it's certainly been. The economy has contracted spectacularly, the debt has continued to explode, unemployment is at record levels, pensioners are living below the poverty line, and the bloody silly voters voted against years more of the same for their own good. Some even suggest they never saw a cent or a euro of the debt they're asked to undergo, a little bit of austerity for, for their own good. And to show just how envious they are of the great practitioners, they argue the money all went to the banks and the wealthy. Any wonder responsible people so abhor this sort of class hatred, perpetuation of class warfare where there is no class warfare. Apparently, at some point, all that austerity would stop the economy contracting, create jobs, help pensioners. No idea how, but that's why we have the great practitioners to tell us what's good for us.
back here and those who want class war where there is no class war obviously evil unions have used their mafia connections to set up innocent caring business class party responsible people like poor innocent Amanda Millstone that left of left ABC commentator who last week was directing us to the sensible centre but obviously the sensible centre needs to move further to the centre to get away from the evil unions, although maybe the Mafia have discovered just where the sensible centre is, which is obviously wherever poor Amanda is. But no need for a Kanga mission into that connection, although I did hear a caring business class party person call for an inquiry into the links between the Mafia and the Socialist Party and the evil unions. He must have, been, he must have read a different report. As the ABC keeps telling us it was practising freedom of speech, then keeps telling us it was wrong to practise freedom of speech, it has appointed an independent review to find out it was wrong to practise free speech, guaranteed with the appointment of that renowned independent Ray Mortine. So called, of course, because of all the sprays he has given over the years to anyone or any thought remotely to the left of his former master, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse. See, the ABC is not really independent, for goodness sake, it allows those who have a different point of view an occasional, oh so occasional, but occasional voice. Whereas Ray Mortine is the very essence of independence, as defined by Tiny and Team True Blue Aussie and Lord Rupert and the late Lord Kerry. Or as Lord Rupert's highly intelligent, deep-thinking lackey at the True Blue Aussie trade-in with the big red True Blue Aussie up the top, Paul Killy the left told the ABC, it must give more thought to whom it gives a voice, allows to be heard. That is true independence, Lord Rupert style, Paul explained, or we might say admitted. The conversion on the road to award to Lord Rupert's former number one true blue Aussie lackey, John No Hart again, who has apparently found his heart again. We all recall John time after time defending Lord Rupert against unfair attacks over, well, over all those issues over which Lord Rupert gets unfairly attacked, like hacking phones and the odd alleged bias and not paying tax and other normal business practices. Well, cop this quote, direct quote, Tiny a bit more for the bosses has buddy-mindedly kowtowed to media mates Lord Rupert and Kerry stacks the profits by rolling Malcolm Tun of Bull's push to unwind media ownership rules which would have enabled regional networks to survive. Uh, John Nohart again attacking Lord Rupert. Uh, John, why aren't you defending Lord Rupert like you did for years? Well, obviously, I'm now big supremo of a regional network. Oh, so, so if you were still Lord Rupert's number one lackey, you'd say Tiny has done the right thing opposing Malcolm, kowtowing to regional networks. Look, I will not defend a ruthless, filthy, rich autocrat. When I did, I was just doing my job. Uh, but what about principle? I love principle. Lots and lots of principle and lots and lots of interest on principle. Oh, you mean principle as in money, capital. Uh, what other sort is there? No principle involved, John, but your conversion on the road to award is on the way. Finally, with that phrase about Greece and having mentioned the late and sadly lamented Lord Kerry of Waterhouse, thought we'd wind up with one of our regular bad Lord Kerry jokes from years and years ago. 
They say there's only two certainties in life. Death and, uh, death, death and, uh, death, death and... Christ, what's the other one? Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy, and that was his week that was. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time is 12 minutes past four o'clock, and you can be listening on your radio, you can be listening on your internet by 3cr.org.au, or you could be streaming live too, and podcasting, for that's people who want to Listen to the program whenever they like. So that's something that you also get, 3cr.org.au. Is a death cult nothing but a death cult? Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look at Islam in Australia. Death cult. All these mosques being built. This is a death cult. To use this term is to dignify a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting. The communist left and Islam. Because the two... Are hand in hand. You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand? Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne? That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock so we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia. Not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text subscribe to 0422-726-843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. Just 25 bucks each. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Anti-GE activist Jessica Harrison spoke last week about her participation in a GE-free conference in Berlin. And then after the conference, well, it wasn't all work and no play, was it? Oh, Just no. t- tell us a bit about Berlin. Berlin, yeah. Well, it was a lovely city to be in. It was spring, warm. Everyone was out in the streets. The public transport is amazing. So there's trams, buses. There's no Mikey hoo-ha. You just give coins when you get on the bus. So it made it much easier for someone like me. And trains as well, underground system. There was actually a complete strike with the overground trains at the time. So that was an interesting one. Everyone just said, no, no trains. It was the anniversary of the end of the war, so there was a lot of public displays and, for example, most of the buildings that had been destroyed in the middle of the war had photographs of of what they looked like after they'd been bombed and then you looked at the way they'd been restored, so that was pretty interesting. There were memorials to the differently able people who had been killed by the Nazis. There was also a nice memorial to the travellers. I went to the Jewish Museum when I was there, which was really comprehensive. Yeah, it was a very interesting time to be in Berlin. 
You've been there before? No, I haven't actually. Uh-huh. Where were the squats that you knew of? Oh, okay. So there is one big squat still in Berlin. The heyday of squatting in Berlin was the 80s. But um, I didn't actually go to the squat in Berlin, but it looked, it was definitely still going. What did you find out about the progress of alternative energy? Oh, in well, Germany? the. the as you fly in, which of course dodgy in itself that I flew there, but as you fly in, you see that wind turbines everywhere really integrated in people's lives. So either in urban situations or in rural situations, just sticking up out of the paddocks. There was none of this, you know, hoo-ha that happens here of making sure that there are X number of kilometres between where people are living and wind turbines. It was just integrated completely into the German economy, as far as I could tell. Oh, lots of people riding bikes, really full, fully covered and weatherproof bike racks for people. So you knew that your bike was going to be okay when you came back. Came what out. about solar? I didn't see that much solar in Germany. I did see some of those snazzy new wind turbines, the ones that sort of operate vertically rather than or operate without the spinning fan that we're used to seeing. So, yeah, I think, again, if I'd had more time, I would have seen more diversity, I think. I know down your way in in Gippsland, coal seam gas is an issue. Did you find any of that? In, in when your the, travels in or UK. people telling you? Not yeah. in Germany? Not in Germany, no. It's banned in France. Not sure. I can imagine it wouldn't be used in Germany. But, of course, it's not perfect in, in Europe. There's still nuclear power producing energy there. So. They are phasing it out, aren't they? They are, that's right. Yeah. They're phasing out coal too, aren't they? Yes. So they've got, they're set, getting set up with mainly wind. Is that what you're saying? Again, I don't know the exact balance of solar, wind and so and in their their mix but um i think it helps a lot to have not have governments that are so wedded to 50s technology nonsense century technology they <laughs> yeah, call it, don't that's they? right well let's talk about your week in london i know you went to other places but that was more to visit relatives or friends what was going on in London the time you were there. I will say one thing about rural UK, which is that I went to Totnes, which is the home of the transition movement, and they have a thing called Transition Totnes. So it's a daring area similar to where I live in Gippsland. And so what they've done is identify a crop which would there would be a demand for and which the farmers, and they're a proven demand, so the farmers could then start growing and then they are crowdfunding the equipment to actually process it. So that was oats. So what they were doing was giving away oat biscuits in the main street and they were asking local people to sort of help fund that process. So that was just a nice example of, of an initiative there. Um, but yeah, in London, well, of course, London is this big tourist city um, if you're in the centre. But of course, as soon as you go outside the centre, it's people trying to live their normal lives. So when I lived in London, I lived in Brixton and there's just been a big march of people saying reclaim Brixton basically against gentrification and so that was having knock-on effects when I went to Speaker's Corner people were talking about that march so it shows you that just one little pushback against that real estate prices and so on saying it's hard to live can have a sort of have a real ripple effect. What's Speaker's Corner compared to what it was well, years ago? Well, Speaker's Corner was this quite vibrant place in the 80s. Of course, there were still the, the religious types. And unfortunately, I found a lot more religion there when I was there a few weeks ago. But in between, there were people like 
there was someone who I knew from the 80s holding up his sort of, um, subversive collages, which was very topical at the moment because the, the Tories had just got in again in, that, in the election. So he was... He was holding up some of his collages, and which were, of course, <laughs> sort of making fun of the Tories and people were coming up and talking and saying, how did this happen? How, how could it have happened? What are we going to do next? And, and the big thing at, there is that Scotland is, of course, does have, still have a welfare system fairly intact compared to the UK. So people are saying, oh, I'm moving to Scotland. <laughs> or um, people in the north of England have been talking about moving. There was an anti... Monsanto demonstration? There was, yeah. That was part of the worldwide march against Monsanto. Really interesting because if you march, you're sort of parading in lots of cases, but this was actually a static rally, but it turned into a sort of teaching because we did actually check in the crowd and, and about a quarter of them had never been to a rally before. So it's interesting the thing about what motivates people. So it was compared by an Islamic poet and he'd invited quite a few of his friends who were rappers. So it was really nice to sort of be entertained in between the sort of the stories of GM. I spoke about, again, as I was saying about how the demand for non-GM in Europe is what's driving the increased price for non-GM here. We had people from the newly formed mums against GM uh, speaking as well in, and people talking about the TPP, of course, as a GM freeze campaign. And at the moment in Europe, there's a lot of pressure. There was a, a Europe-wide policy against GM, but they've managed to overturn that. So now there's an opt-out where any country could decide to introduce GM, so it makes a much weaker sort of front against it. So, of course, there was a lot of concern about whether GM was going to be grown in the UK again. And is that likely? Really don't know. It depends. With the government they've got? Well, it depends on whether their hands are full. I mean, under Blair, that there was a strong push for GM. Under Cameron, I'm sure that the same push for GM research is there. But, again, there's a strong campaign against mm-hmm. it. What about climate change? How are people thinking and doing about that? In the UK, again, like with Germany, there were wind turbines everywhere. There were whole um, sort of paddocks full of solar. And so apparently that's come under some criticism because it is arable land. Wouldn't it be better to put the solar on roofs rather than in paddocks? But farmers were obviously getting a bit of extra cash by generating power on in their fields and they were able to run stock as at the same time so I didn't wasn't driving when I was in London but of course as a as a whole area of central London you can't come into unless you pay some kind of huge tax which I think is a good way that they've managed to reduce the the numbers the the public transport system worked well you know and even sort of like 1 2 a.m in London you can still get it get out from the centre right out to the suburbs. So that made it really good. I mean, the places that I that I lived in before were still fairly intact, but, of course, it's a matter of time. There's a lot of gentrification. Is this in Brixton? Yeah, and Lewisham I was staying in, which is another South London working-class area. I also visited where some young people who are homeless are squatting right in the centre of London, so right near Bond Street. As so in, how are they treated? They're treated pretty bad, pretty roughly. They were very stressed the afternoon I visited them because they'd had the BBC hang around filming them. And 
they were all covering their faces because naturally they didn't want to be anyone to be held um, liable for possible charges at a later time. But as soon as the media went, they were quite open and friendly. And they're basically a group of young people who are going from place to place. And, um, of course, the anti-austerity protests that happened on the weekend, that's the kind of thing that motivates them because they realise that oh, there are a lot more people than just than them stirred up about homelessness. They were being given a court order that day to move out, to leave, because, of course, it was very good real estate where they were squatting, and so they were prepared to move. They all had their bags packed, ready to move to the next place. So gentrification has taken off in a big way. It has, yeah. It's, and my friends who I was staying with, they were expecting their children to be grown and still living with them because it would be impossible to get places to live. Quite a few people I know who were squatting in the 80s have moved out of London and are sort of decentralised in some of the smaller cities because, because of that. And do the Olympic Games have a big impact on that by moving people out of the east? east and where do they get moved to, yeah. do you know? One of the things that people are very hopeful about is some of the estates, council estates, of course, are getting pressure to move even further out of London, and so they are resisting it. And the process of resisting has meant they've built up real communities. So they were having these festival days on the council estates that can be quite alienating places to live, and they were having days where everyone would come out and get given haircuts by people who knew how to do, <laughs> do haircuts. So nice little sort of open festival spaces and I went to some a benefit for the climate camp which was um, run in a building which probably in past years would have been squatted but this was just an arrangement that people could still have you run events and a sort of community art gallery in this place that was disused. What about these estates though? I imagine they must be pretty old now and a lot of them really run down. You see films about Britain and England on TV and different places and they look pretty shabby and yeah. you think, you know, think thousands and thousands of people thrown together into those dreadful high-rise. Definitely, and as they sell them off, there's the whole poor door thing, which is when a block is bought up or a new, a new um, building is developed, they have to have a certain amount of affordable housing in the block. And so what they did was then develop a thing where the poor people who were in the affordable housing had to enter by a different door to the rich people who'd invested in it. So that's if that isn't sort of blatant example of class, what is? And are they moving out of London and taking it more and more of the, the farmland? Yeah. Like oh, they are in, in Melbourne? I mean, there were industrial area in the east. In the east end, there were industrial areas like that was the, where the Ford plant is. Those areas are just getting, people are getting moved out of those, not so much into the country areas, although there's a lot of development on the edges of towns as well. What did you find out about food while you were there? You were there for three weeks at farmers markets, organic food, sustainability is that an issue that was i didn't see any organic markets in london but um there was just the same market there's always been in in south london and um that sort of caters to west indian population so there's quite a bit of importing so it wouldn't be local locally based food but um i think the same problems we have here which is you know that the fresher more local food is more expensive and there are the big chains and the same problems with globalisation really. And how did you gauge that people are getting on with you know all this austerity that we're hearing about? Are people really suffering? Lots of people really suffering? Yeah well I think that um, 
a lot of it is behind closed doors, mm. that kind of thing, like lack of services and so on. But I think what the people I talked to who'd been active in London for many years were inspired by was that kind of grassroots organising that Russell Brand gave a lot of publicity where people were refusing to leave their estate because they had their networks there. And I think if the communities can manage to resist that gentrification, that will have a really good effect of opening out the concerns rather than keeping people having to keep them private. And are they still trying to force people out by saying that if you've got a spare bedroom, you have to oh, allow someone in? Oh, that's been brought in. So it what's has, happened is yeah. they haven't so much forced people out, but they've increased the rent. So you are penalised. They're also going to be paying housing benefit directly to the tenants, which means that if you're not really organised in your budget, you will end up spending your rent money and you'll be out. That's happening across the board and that's and there were people I knew who worked in housing for the local councils who were really worried about that. Now another happening while you were there was a, a climate camp. That's right, yes. So they held them every year and they often result in a sort of mass trespass onto an adjacent power plant. In this time, they decided they were going to have a protest camp weekend next to um, a coal-fired power station which had been closed, but the gas component of it was still running. So what's happening with coal seam gas in the UK is there's a strong push to use to extract coal seam gas and then use it domestically rather than what we have in Victoria where it's going to be exported or um, New South Wales and Queensland where it is exported. There are 30 new gas-fired power stations planned for the UK so you can imagine the effect that's having on people. I was there on the setup day and the actual day after I had to leave but what the results of this action I thought were very creative because they didn't just go to the the power station that was just the other side of the paddock basically they did 18 decentralized actions around the country including delegates from a world coal association conference were locked out of their um meeting room they had a protest, uh, another protest, wind, not gas. They had the revo- they occupied a revolving door into one of the offices, talking about the revolving door between the gas industry and the government. They occupied a PR firm which worked for the gas companies. They had a protest outside uh, one of the nuclear companies. They had um, the peak body representing gas in the UK occupied that. They protested outside a Tory party headquarters and then they had action with the um, anti-fracking nanas, which, of course, we have here, the knitting nanas. So, yeah, 18 actions in all. Great organising. Yeah, and they must have... I'd love to know how they did it. I suppose some people would have come to the camp and then just headed off after they had sort of workshopped exactly. They were very well organised. The camp was set up by crowds of people putting up tents and so I, I love joining in on that kind of thing because I love it being really practical. A huge truck turned up, run by a workers' cooperative, delivering the food for the weekend. We all formed a conga line and, and unloaded it. We had a whole uh, help build a geodesic dome, which was the kids' space. We assembled benches and tents were going up. And, of course, the whole camp was run using solar and wind power. So, yeah, it was lovely to be there even just for a day to see the kind of organisation. And I suppose in in some sense it was sort of a decoy, wasn't it? Well, the authorities 
concentrated on this huge amount of people, they're trotting off into all directions. That's right. And some of them would have not come to the camp. They would have just gone straight to their local. And, you know, the impact of that, right, and and they said they're really making the links between the industry as it is, the PR firms and so on, and I think that's really the way to go. I was pretty inspired by that. All in all, four weeks out of Australia. Oh, yes. What did you come great back with? Of fresh, it was a great breath of fresh air. One, to see my friends who I haven't seen for 12 years and see how things have changed or not changed. What hasn't changed? Well, I suppose the geography of London is pretty much the same. So the, the gentrification's happened in spite of the fact that all the old roads are still there. And, and no um, high-rise like around Melbourne? Not really, no. I mean... They've managed. They fit it in. I mean, there's lots of building work going on. That's no doubt how the young squatters got into the place in Pall Mall, and there were builders skips all around. But they have to sort of fit it within the the ancient roads of London. Really, what has changed is the fact that the East End, through Canary Wharf, the whole in financial sector in in the East, has resulted in a whole lot more public transport. I found myself on trains that that didn't exist. 12 years ago. So a few little services were coming in as well as the effect of this um, gentrification. Back home, Jessica, there's plenty happening down in your way. That's right. Coal seam gas is the big thing at the moment. There's an inquiry into unconventional gas happening right now. So all the local groups are putting in their own submissions to the inquiry. That closes on the 10th of July. And of course, that's the kind of pressure we don't really need because we've already taken part in two rounds of consultation. And the message from the consultation is we don't want coal seam gas. You know, we want to actually continue to grow food in our, in South Gippsland and the two things completely incompatible. Because it's such an important food growing area. That's right, yeah. So what's happened is that the Victorian, the current government has just taken it upon themselves to do a seismic survey of our particular part of South Gippsland. So around Wonthaggy, Venus Bay, Inverloch. They did this with a sort of minimum of consultation. They told us a week before they started. And of course, people were very stood up. So they had meetings, about three or four consultation community engagement type meetings, where we all said, look, a lot of us have gone through the whole process of the desalination plant. We don't like these sort of things happening and being on our doorstep without us having any warning. We were already getting calls from farmers who felt as if it might be coal seam gas exploration happening even though there's a current moratorium until the end of the year so they pegged out beside the roads and this was what was causing the farmers concern we said to the reps when they arrived is this information going to be publicly available this seismic testing which can go down they said up to 40 kilometers down into the earth's core (laughs) is this information going to be publicly available and then the answer came back yes and we said well really you're doing the coal seam gas exploration companies work for them aren't you and they admitted that the information they're gathering would be very useful to anyone who was exploring for coal seam gas because it looks at coal, which of course often is associated with the gas, and it looks at areas where there isn't any coal. So, so really, we question why Victorian taxpayers were actually funding this study, and they didn't really have an answer to that. I mean, they were there just to soak up our complaints, really. So that process is happening for the next three weeks in Gippsland, and no one's impressed, and no one's impressed at this inquiry, the fact we have to now restate the fact that coal seam gas is not compatible with farming and we don't want it. 
Um, meanwhile, we're also surveying our immediate area. So that involves going door to door, talking to landholders and, and just asking them yes or no. And of course, <laughs> the answer is resoundingly no or yes in regards to keeping our area free of coal seam gas. What did the Labor Party promise before they were elected? They promised an inquiry. There were forums before the election and, of course, some of us said, you know, do you really need an inquiry? Surely it's been proven the damage that's been done in Queensland and and also in northern New South Wales. And the one I come back to is the one in Gloucester, which is near about three hours out of Sydney, where I went there and they had 300 CSG exploration sites um, planned. And then, of course, fracking fluid was found in some of the surface water, so the whole thing's now on hold. So, I mean, do we need more proof of this? But anyway, it's happening right now in Gippsland. I heard someone talking on Talkback a couple of days ago about Mubu North. What's happening up there? Ah, Well, that's another shock. Last um, Monday, everyone got a letter um, saying that they were the, the Victorian government has allowed an exploration for a coal mine there. And so... <laughs> they said, oh, we've excluded the centre of the town. Oh, well, that's, that's nice. nice. <laughs> so they're not going to raise the whole of Mobu North and move it sideways like they have done in the past in Latrobe Valley. But you can imagine they surveyed last in the last couple of years and 96.7% of the population don't want any new coal in the area. So, of course, everyone's very upset. The area on the map that I've looked at covers a huge area of um, surrounding Mobu North and then a big swathe to the east. So that's just an ongoing crisis and no doubt tell you more as it develops. So they surveyed saying that the community didn't want either and now suddenly exploration for coal's been allowed. And what's happening with fracking in other parts of Australia? Have they stopped it all round or is it still happening? Oh, it's still happening in Queensland and it'd still be happening in northern New South Wales, just that that um, amazing Bentley opposition mm. that everyone knows about now. It was repelled there, but they did actually appeal um, and were successful. But would they really go into the area again after that amount of resistance? So once again, it's like with climate change. The only thing that's really stopping climate change is the is action by activists and the same with coal seam gas. I did hear a former employer of the gas and fuel talking the other day saying that there's no need for them to get gas in Victoria because they plugged all these wells in Bass Strait years and years and years ago and if they really needed gas, it's all there. It's just got Mm. plugs in it. In the back of my mind, it's always that if you're a little start-up company, you want to look as if you're doing something. So if you have an exploration licence, you sink a few wells, you frack a bit, you know, oh, it's busy work, isn't it? But we're not having it. And that's um, anti-GE or GMOs and anti-coal seam gas activist par excellence Jessica Harrison speaking about her recent visit to Germany and also to England and more news about what's happening. Down in Gippsland, the battle goes on, as Jessica said. And as I was saying before, if you'd like to hear this program, any other program on podcast, the you go to 3cr.org.au and the program can be put straight into your computer and you can listen at your leisure. Also, there is streaming where each program can be listened to for up to a week and once that week is up, the next week's program is there for a week. So it's there on your computer, 3cr.org.au. 
So that's for people who might not be able to listen at the particular time the program goes to air. And the time at 3CR is 4.40. 3CR's Beyond the Bars is proud to present a live broadcast in Victorian prisons during NAIDOC week from the 6th to the 10th of July 2015. Tune in every day, Monday, 11am to 2pm from Danefields Frost Centre, Deer Park. Tuesday, 10am to 2pm from Barwon Prison, Lara, near Geelong. Wednesday, 12 to 2pm from Fulham Correctional Centre, near Sale in Gippsland. And Wednesday, 2 to 4pm from Middleton Prison, Castlemaine. Thursday, 12 to 4pm from Port Phillip Prison in Laverton. And Friday, 11am to 2pm from Marguerite Correctional Centre, Lara, near Geelong. Check out more info on 3cr.org.au slash beyondthebars. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. The next counter-mobilisation against Reclaim Australia will be held here in Melbourne on Saturday the 18th of July and in other cities on Sunday the 19th, organised by the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. This is the third Melbourne rally following the successful ones in Federation Square in April and at Richmond in May. Debbie Brennan is an activist with the campaign and also National Union of Worker community member. First, Debbie, can you identify some of these far-right groups here in Australia? The one that is probably best known at the moment is the United Patriots Front. They've been the most out front there, and they organized their failed rally in Richmond in March. But there are... So many others. The Australian Defence League is something that's been around for ages. I know that there have been uh, counteractions against them in the past. There's the Golden Dawn that probably people certainly have heard about from Greece who have been trying to set up a branch here. There's a party for freedom, and I understand that recently they've actually put up posters in Newtown in Sydney, which are highly homophobic and also vilifying the left, and so they seem to have a little bit of activity up around that area. And I've heard of the Q Society from time to time, and those are just some of many, either little, tiny, almost non-existent to those that are probably just a little bit more active at the moment. 
And do these groups all have links with overseas groups, these main ones? I would say that they do. I mean, I wouldn't be able to say that authoritatively. However, for example, the Australian Defence League certainly would with the UK Defence League and so on. And, of course, the fascist movement is something that is an international movement, unfortunately. It's interesting when I was looking at the list of some of these groups, just about every one of them starts off with Australia. Yes, yes, that nationalistic patriotic fervor yes and uh some of them as you say there's some of them been around for quite a while but others are sort of just creeping out of the woodwork recently that's correct and in fact um the first one that i mentioned the united patriots front from what i understand is something that formed itself out of reclaim australia after the april reclaim australia rally however the head of that, the head honcho, is someone who has, I think, been a member of the Australian Defence League. So these things that are hatching now seem to be hatching out of things that have existed before. And this is happening at a particular time in history, isn't it? When you've got right-wing governments in many countries of the world and these groups are following Or who's following who? That's a a very good question. But the pattern, I think it's probably the critical thing is the conditions from which they arise. So you're alluding to, for example, the rise of a fascist movement in Europe. And we certainly know about what's been happening in Greece. And also the political parties. And the political parties, absolutely. And they've actually, in Europe, they've actually won some seats. The thing is that in Australia, those conditions have been presenting themselves here as well. So we have that same combination happening or evolving very quickly, which is of a global economy going belly up, and it's just absolutely collapsing around our ears. The impact of that, the fact that working class people are being made to pay for that, so the hardships that we're facing every which way in our lives. So with that happening, and with the the stripping away of our rights by right-wing governments, whether they be a Tony Abbott government or his predecessors, the thing is that there's revolt. I mean, we're taking to the streets, and we've certainly been taking to the streets consistently here since, uh, well, for well over a year, over so many related issues. And so when you got that combination of the uh, intensifying hardship and people finding it hard to survive, the protest and revolt that comes out of that, then we have groups like these little fascist groups or far-right groups that aren't necessarily technically fascist, who play on that. They offer up scapegoats. It's happened here as elsewhere. It's helped them to have successive governments demonizing, in this case, Muslims or people from an Arabic background that's been going on ever since 9-11 of 2001. So it's an evolving of that scapegoating, very similar to the anti-Semitism after World War I. And, of course, big business that is really becoming more and more desperate to be crushing our capacity to revolt will be turning to these fascist groups to be doing the dirty work in the streets. So fascism is actually the building of a movement. It's a movement to attract 
those who are isolated and generally disconnected and prepared to accept whatever scapegoat that's offered as the explanation for why their lives are so hard. If we look back at mid-century, last century, we can see how the Nazi movement started from nothing, but because they were not counteracted, that they were able to grow, and that they were able to grow grow first through the um, anti-Semitism that was absolutely rife, and then, of course, going after Romani, independent women, LGBTIQ, etc. And so it's the, the merging of a movement which is there to crush the organized working class, the union movement, the left, and any organization of the working class. Its purpose is to crush the capacity of the working class to organize and ultimately to revolt. And you can see examples of this happening outside of Australia as well. We can absolutely see it, and we only have to look at Greece and and parts of Europe to see how that happens. It is no exaggeration to say that it is a very deadly, violent, murderous kind of regime. Now, apart from rallies like we've seen here in April and May, how do they get their message of hate across in a general sense? First, they're, they're very, very active on the social media. They're posting stuff all over the place. And, in fact, with that United Patriots Front, for example, they have been very, very active on the social media. They're putting out videos all the time, etc. That seems to be their, their main focus of um, getting word out there. But um, at the same time, such as those posters that I mentioned in Sydney, that old traditional kind of getting the message out on the posts. It's hard to kind of trace this at the moment, but I think it's happening and it will happen more, which is that you're going to be seeing them appearing, whether it be in workplaces or just in any kind of out there community activity, and they'll they'll certainly be doing that far more. But at the moment, it really does seem to be through their rallies and through their social media networks. So you don't hear any instances of people being actually accosted on the streets, say Muslim people, and, and being fearful of of travelling on maybe public transport? Oh, absolutely. Actually, that is happening. And we have certainly seen that in the area that I tend to be a lot, which is around Brunswick-Coburg, and that's been going on for some time. And you do hear about this happening elsewhere in the country. So, yes, they do do that terrorising of individuals out there in the community. What happens with these rallies is they're sort of a counter-rally they organise a rally and you organise a counter-rally. Is there a, a danger, though, that it turns people off because it comes a confrontation and the media plays up that confrontation and maybe you're losing your point because of the way the media covers it? You're right that the mainstream media does do that. However, I think that people generally can see through that. So in that counteracting whenever they show their faces. 
I think people understand that this is something we just absolutely have to do. We have to stop them before they can possibly grow. So that at those counteractions that we've had even most recently, people have come out in their thousands to counter-mobilize against them. So people really... People do understand, and I'm sure that that hysteria that comes through the mainstream media will probably influence some people. But by and large, it's something that people do understand that we've got to do. Do the police act in a certain way? Do you feel as if they are acknowledging the threat? Is that a concern? Yes, and it's certainly something that we recognize that the police may do the the neutral rhetoric. However, historically, and by historically, I mean even recently as well, every single time there is a face-off with the far right, the police are always there to protect the far right. They just are. And I think that it probably should come as no surprise to us that this happens because, after all, what is the role of the police? The role of the police is to protect the private property and the interests of big business and the status quo. Also a concern having so many horses around when these demonstrations are happening? It's very scary, actually, to be right there amongst it. And those of us who who have been out there counter-mobilizing, we've been up against that form of weaponry, basically. And actually, you're kind of raising a, um, a very high priority among those of us who are organizing the counter-mobilizations, which is the importance of our safety, and the importance of our safety is the importance of discipline. That collective, disciplined counteraction is vital. You can do that when you've got a small group, but if you've got people just coming off the street or people that you not don't know very well, they come on that day. How do you secure their safety then? Do you have marshals... Yes, yes. And this is where marshalling is probably one of the most fundamental parts of the counter-mobilizing. So probably the two biggest parts of the counter-mobilizing are getting the message out, educating about what the threat actually is, but also the marshalling on the day. What about the violence of the the far right. I've been to a couple of the rallies and it, it's it's really scary that the they come with all their, their tats on and they've got their Nazi symbols tattooed into their neck and they're really provocative and it's must be hard to pull back and, and say, Well, I'm in the right, let them sling off like that, I'll be managed. Yes, I mean it, it does push buttons to see that. However, that's where that discipline always has to play a big part. We cannot let our uh, buttons get pushed. And so, once again, it's that importance of the collectivity, the disciplined collectivity of the counteraction, and because it is our collective safety that is absolutely important. But while we're looking after our safety, we are also there literally linking arms to force them out of the space as well, to run them out of town. And I guess a a big part of this whole issue is that that's why we have to 
overpower them, not only with our collective discipline, but with our numbers. And that's what we have done every single time so far, and we have to continue to do that. And I think, too, the importance of having the Aboriginal people on your side in this rally because they are the ones that have been targeted as well. Do you invite Muslim groups to come with you as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And, in fact, part of the the organising around this and getting the message out that while the far right and the, the small fascists are targeting Muslims, we're certainly dealing with Islamophobia. The targets are actually broader than that, and they've already extended very quickly beyond Muslims. You've just mentioned Aboriginal Australians. They are also already targeting and vilifying the left, and they are beginning to target the unions. And, and I'd really like to bring in the importance of mobilizing the union movement, because the union movement has a crucial role to play in this. After all, the union movement is where the working class is organized, and the union movement has that capacity to organize not only entire workforces, but our communities. And so this is something where in our organizing, most of us are actually rank and file unionists and delegates in our unions. And so... The mobilizing of the union movement is another very big vital part of this mobilizing, and it's part of that disciplined mobilizing that the unions have that capacity to do. And what liaison is there with the union at the moment? The liaising is constantly being done with our respective unions and with Victorian Trades Hall, for example. Those of us who are members of our unions are talking among our rank-and-file co-members, as well as to our respective unions. But also something that happened uh, recently is that the Victorian Trades Hall Council in June passed a resolution in solidarity with any community, sectors of the community, that are being targeted in any racist or religious, cultural kind of way. Now, that actually raised the ire of the fascist groups. And in fact, it sent them apoplectic. So that, again, to answer your question, it's that constant work within the union movement in various different ways that will never stop. And we are hoping that we will reach the point where the union movement as a whole and formally will be coming in behind the counter-mobilizing Where is the rally happening on the 18th? Okay, on Saturday, July 18th, as far as we know at the moment, it's going to be at Parliament House. And we are also letting people know that from 10 o'clock we need to be there. It's a bit of a moving target, but that is the information at the moment. If people want to stay in touch and actually be able to follow this moving target, I suggest two things. One thing is that anybody on Facebook should be liking Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, so updates are going to be there all the time. For those not on Facebook, you can send a text to the following number, which is 0422 726 
888-843-8843 and text the word subscribe and that will also keep you in touch with any updated information. Why is there a moving target? Well, because Reclaim Australia and their fascist friends were tracking the information, and the information is not exactly set in absolute concrete. They know that they're being pursued, so they're being a bit coy. I'll also mention, incidentally, that as far as we understand, for the Melbourne rally, they're going to be busing people from Sydney and other places. As well, they are holding their rallies in other cities around the country on the 19th. There are counter-mobilizations against those rallies on the 19th in various cities as well. So this is actually a national happening Although, as far as the far right is concerned and the fascists are concerned, Melbourne is the tough nut to crack, and they want to crack Melbourne, which is why we can't let them. We have to crack them. Well, you might know the exact time, but I'm sure the police do because Mm. they have to know to mobilise their troops. That's absolutely true, and I just know from past experience, you don't get hard and fast information from the police because they're not exactly there to collaborate. So yes, I agree with you. They would probably know. We certainly have our channels as well. So again, as far as things are known at the moment, Reclaim Australia is going to be holding its rally in the early afternoon. What we want to do, of course, is to be there to claim that ground before. Now, when they say reclaim Australia, what are they arguing that they're reclaiming it from? Yes, that's always a good question, isn't it? It's um, well, I suppose if you can get your, if you can imagine the headspace of ultra racist, sexist, homophobic, and everything else patriot, you would be thinking that they're wanting to reclaim that nice white Australia and the patriarchal nuclear family and just make everything wonderful again. Of course, the obvious thing that comes into our minds is, especially in the midst of the massive, massive mobilizations in solidarity with Aboriginal Australians, that we certainly know, well, what do they think they're reclaiming? That is nothing to reclaim or to establish. It also is is provocative when they come draped in Australian flags and they've got Australian flags for scarves and they've got hats on and, you know, we are the true Australians. Exactly. And again, we know what they mean by that and we can just think something like Ku Klux Klan and we know exactly what that is code for. Okay, if you'd like to give the, um, the Facebook page again and the text number yes the facebook page is campaign against racism and fascism the number to text the word subscribe to is zero four double two seven two six eight four three and the time is likely to be something between 10 and 12 on saturday it, it the is likely to be that exactly yes And that was Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And that's Saturday the 18th of July. Be there at 10 o'clock outside Parliament House.
Activist Martha Hennessy is the granddaughter of the co-founder of the Catholic Worker Movement in New York in 1933, Dorothy Day, which is a collection of autonomous communities of Catholics and their associates which campaign for non-violence, actively opposing war and the unequal distribution of wealth. When I spoke with Martha, I first asked her about Dorothy Day and in the 1930s in the US when she began her activism, what it would have been like for her and what she experienced at that time. I think I would be reluctant to use the term activist for her and in the 1930s. You know, she was a newly converted Catholic and she was a journalist by trade. And so I think she was faced with um, the Great Depression and the conditions of the Great Depression where massive displacement within the country and severe hunger and just a very wide gap between those who had enough or more than enough and those who didn't have enough to get by. And also being a woman, I think that that probably was very difficult, you know, a man's world of uh, newspaper reporting. And she was also a single working mother. She faced a lot of challenges in her time, and I think she relied very heavily on um, friends and family and her faith to do what she did in those tumultuous times. And what did she do? Well, she started the Catholic Worker Movement with Peter Morin. In 1933, they issued the first paper on May 1st, and it was trying to address the conditions of the workers in the United States. The working conditions in all of the industrialized jobs was harsh. There was even child labor. She started with that kind of a focus, and she and Peter Morin, who was a French peasant and a Christian brother and a teacher, she had to um, work with him to decide what the paper would address and what the focus would be. And so certainly employment, uh, unionized labor, issues of war. In her lifetime, she witnessed one war after the other, and in the 1930s, it was the build-up to World War II. What was her influence on you as you were growing up? She was a very important part of our lives. I had my grandmother and my mother. I didn't have my father and I didn't have my grandfather. So very much reliant on both my mother and my grandmother. And Dorothy made the time to uh, come and visit her family as much as she could. It was a good way for her to um, have a relief from the workload and to just sit with family and visit in Vermont. So we saw her fairly frequently, and uh, I was uh, 25 years old when she died. She certainly instilled in all of us a significant awareness of the suffering of others. From a very early age, I was quite aware of that and understanding the issues of the day. In the 1960s, as a child, I was certainly hearing about the Vietnam War and famine in Biafra and the conditions of the black people in the United States as well. What was your first activism? I was arrested at age 23 protesting nuclear power plant in Seabrook, New Hampshire. My son's father was one of the first uh, group of folks to be arrested in 19. 19- 76, and then I was arrested in 
1979 and served three months in prison. And at that time, I understood the connection between nuclear power and nuclear weapons. So that was my taste of um, entering that world. And it was a rather harsh introduction. My son was two years old when I went to prison. The judge gave us a nine-month sentence, but we only served three. I was with two other women. One was pregnant with her second child. So that's an experience that I'll not forget. And the nuclear power plant went online, ultimately, anyhow. You were part of Catholic Worker at that time? Well, I've grown up in the Catholic Worker, but my mother, you know, moved to Vermont when I was quite young. There were Catholic workers getting arrested at Seabrook at the time, but I was with a New Hampshire and Vermont group of folks because that's where I was living. So in, in my teenage years, we would spend the summers at the Catholic Worker Farm in uh, Tivoli, New York. But then when I was raising my children, I did not visit the Catholic Worker. I mean, Dorothy's funeral was in 1980 at Mary House, and I did not visit Mary House again until, 19, uh, until 2004, nearly 24 years later. I was in Vermont, raising family, getting my kids through college. I was not part of the Catholic Church at that time either. It was 2004 that I began to go back to the church and then ultimately back to the Catholic worker. And now I spend perhaps half time there. When was your first visit overseas? 2007. I went down to Washington, D.C., and joined the um, Catholic worker group there who were beginning to protest the um, situation in Guantanamo. And from 2007 until now, I've been going down just about every January 11th, the anniversary of the opening of the prison camp. We've just recently had a trial last week down in Washington, D.C. That's, that's why I came back from Kabul, Afghanistan a bit early to go to this trial, um, we did an action in the Senate. The CIA torture report had come out in December of 2014, and nothing was really done within the Senate to investigate further. And we called for prosecutions. We called for investigation, a release of the full report, unredacted, and potential prosecutions into war crimes with this business of torture. How many people are still in Guantanamo concentration camp? I think perhaps 70 prisoners. I'm not completely up to date with the exact numbers. I do know that there is one person who has been on hunger strike since 2007, and he is now down to 75 pounds, and he is being force-fed. So the fact that you use the term concentration camp, this person's case very much illustrates justifying the use of that term. It's, It's a horrible situation. And many of these men have been cleared for release, and the United States is just not releasing them. Uh, I think simply out of embarrassment, you know, that the story would get out about what has transpired with these prisoners and what's been done to them. Can you talk a little bit more about the report that came out late last year detailing the torture? Well, essentially it was a Senate steering committee investigation And essentially they were saying that the CIA had misled Congress, 
misled the people that they were accountable to in terms of what they were actually doing, the level of brutality of torture that was used, the use of black sites in other places besides Guantanamo and besides Afghanistan, the use of psychologists and medical doctors along with lawyers and just really giving a sense of the level of, of corruption within the institutions and how unaccountable the CIA went and those in um, upper levels of government who should have been held accountable and were not under the Bush administration. It was heavily redacted as, as well. So there's been no proper acknowledgement of this report by the government? No, not in my eyes. Not in my eyes. No one has been prosecuted. We have Edward Snowden and uh, Chelsea Manning (laughs) being hounded and being imprisoned, but no one has gone to prison about the torture memos that were written that, you know, legally cleared the way for that program. There have been no trials. There should be open trials where the media covers what was done and who did it and to, you know, face the law. They broke international law and there have been no consequences to them which sets a terrible precedent for, you know, what we do today in the future. Well, just the fact of force feeding, that's against international law, isn't it? Yes, I believe. Amnesty International has been certainly writing about it. The United States has just really set a precedent for breaking laws that has had an impact around the world. And, you know, I think that the situation with ISIS is a terrible example of what things lead to when the sole superpower breaks the law and commits great brutality. You need to go no further than the illegal occupation of Iraq. Have you been to Iraq in recent years? I was in northern Iraq in 2009. One of my housemates at Mary House Catholic Worker in New York just this spring was in Kurdistan and uh, Karbala and also in Turkey and so she has given us an update on the conditions there, and it's absolutely lawless and horrific. We've been at war, we've been punishing Iraq since the 1990s, and they were just trying to recover from this proxy war with Iran in the 1980s. My friend Kathy Breen just talked about the impossibility of security, of children not being able to go to school, of families. Every family has suffered death. And now the situation of Shia and Sunni, which we like to paint as, you know, internal fighting, but we played a very major role in setting all of that up. But the living conditions are horrific. She interviewed one old man who was dying of cancer. The cancer rates are very high in places like Fallujah. And he essentially said, go to your president, tell your president, stop sending your dogs of ISIS to eat us up. And the levels of brutality we cannot even begin to imagine. And now we have, I was just in Afghanistan and Ramadan had started. And so Ramadan is occurring at a very hot time of the year and they don't have air conditioning. They go all day without drinking water and the living conditions just continue to deteriorate. And it's all completely amoral and illegal. And this country is doing no reporting about what we have done to that nation. It it certainly is genocide.
How long were you in Afghanistan and what were you able to do? It was my third trip there, and I go with um, Kathy Kelly out of Chicago with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and we are giving support to a wonderful, tiny little community called the Afghan Peace Volunteers, and they are um, young men under the guidance of Hakim, who was a medical doctor who met them in a refugee camp on the border with Pakistan. And he moved back to Bamiyan province with them, now has set up a school in Kabul. And it's an experiment in community living. They study Noam Chomsky and Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., and they're studying nonviolence, and they come from different ethnic backgrounds, Hazara, Pashtun, Tajik. And their experiment in living together and creating community together has been ongoing. And they now have a border-free center where they're teaching 80 street children who have to work on the streets of Kabul, which are very dangerous. Apparently there are 6 million child laborers in Afghanistan, 60,000 of them on the streets of Kabul. And so this school has them learning literacy one day a week. The school provides rice and oil to the families to make up for that one day a week that the kids are in school and not working out on the streets. They also have a duvet project where the women are paid to make duvets and then the duvets are distributed to the refugee camps and schools and mosques and families as needed in the cold winter. It's a wonderful project and I I feel a great privilege to be able to go there and be with them. And of course the security situation continues to deteriorate in Afghanistan just like Syria, just like Iraq, just like Libya, all of these totally destroyed nations left in shambles at the behest of the United States. And Afghanistan suffers terribly. They do have a new president since Karzai, but nothing really has changed. And the warlords and the Taliban continue to have their way with the corrupt, violent conditions there. Do the people tell you that the situation is now even worse than when the first time you went there? I was there in 2013, and just in the past year, or even perhaps the past few months, the casualties have gone up. We visited emergency hospital that's run by the Italians in Kabul, and they say that their uh, wounded people coming in is up 61%. And so, yes, the, the killing has increased as conditions continue to not be addressed under the new president. What is the economy in Afghanistan? Do you get a sense of anyone has a job or is is unemployment so high that very few people have a job? I think the unemployment rate is at 60%, and I believe agriculture is still the um, most prominent industry there. And, of course, the heroin poppy industry has just skyrocketed since the U.S. took the Taliban out. And so a lot of the food is imported from Pakistan. Afghanistan used to raise most of its own food. That has been completely destroyed over the course of the last two decades. Under the Mujahideen as well, uh, land was lost, taken out of agriculture. The economy is in a complete shambles, as is the educational system and as is the infrastructure, solid waste. Uh, The Kabul River, I've never seen 
anything like it in terms of the filth and the garbage. And it was just completely choked up with plastic. And the city is just so sad, so down at the heels from 30 years of war making. Did you get outside for Kabul at all? Uh, my last visit I did. We had a little day trip out into the Peshawar Valley. That was very interesting to see uh, the um, remains of the uh, Soviet war machine, the tanks, just still sitting there from decades ago. This time around, we were very much in the house. We would perhaps go out once a day to walk to the border-free center to the school to help out over there. But generally speaking, we did very little going out. The day before Ramadan, we took a picnic at the Babur Gardens and Historical Park, and that was very nice. You know, people continue to try to carry on with their everyday normal lives there, despite the war-making. But what is normal now? Well, what is normal is being able to take a picnic the day before the fasting begins with Ramadan, um, going shopping, getting your daily bread, you know, for your meals, children getting to school, people getting to work, trying to maintain a normal life. And, of course, Kabul is rather a bubble. There's much, much violence, uncontrolled violence, in the outer provinces, and Kabul is certainly the exception that way. But there were major explosions at the parliament two to three days after I left. I left there June 20th. The Taliban is promising you know, more disruption and more instability and more violence in the city. So it's a matter of time before that bubble gets burst. We just have no idea of what the future is going to look like for the average Afghan person. What about the average Afghan woman? We were told by the lawmakers in America that we need to go into Afghanistan to save the women from the Taliban. What's the situation for women now? It's not good. War worsens the conditions for women and for children. The literacy rate for women is definitely lower than for men. The last time I was there, I helped tutor a young woman who was 16 at the time. Now she is 18, and she was married off by her parents for um, economic reasons, and she is pregnant. She's 18 years old and pregnant with her first child, and her husband's family beats her, and her life is not good, not good at all. So the conditions for the women certainly is not going to improve under war and under economic stress. And frequently the women are at their wit's end trying to get money together to feed their children. Also, there was an incident of a woman who was a student of the Quran who was stoned to death near the major mosque there in Kabul, I think three or four weeks before I arrived in June. Someone had spread false rumor about her desecrating the Quran, and then she was stoned to death. And then I believe that the um, men responsible for it, I think four of them were executed. So the cycle of violence just keeps going on, and the women are certainly caught up in it. And we had to cover ourselves much more stringently this time around. 
nothing but faces and hands showing. The United States has done nothing for the average Afghan woman. Are there still a great number of Afghan refugees living in camps in Pakistan? I don't have any updated information about that. I do know that in Kabul itself, I don't know the exact numbers, but the population has swollen from 3 million to 5 million since the U.S. airstrikes in the outer provinces over the last decade. But I don't have any information about refugee situation in, uh, on the border with Pakistan. And who assists the refugees that are in Kabul? Who is assisting for the camps there? Yes. Again, there's a lot of corruption. NGOs are there trying to help out. I don't have a clear sense of who exactly the different uh, groups are who are trying to assist. I do know that with Iraq, the UNHCR has been just completely swamped and overwhelmed, and people are waiting for three to seven years to hear their cases heard in order to get out. This is in Iraq. Now, I don't know about the situation in Kabul. I'm sure that refugees are are not trying to get out of the country. I'm sure that's impossible at this point in time. But they are stuck in these camps for just indefinite periods of time. And when I visited in 2013, I was able to visit one of the refugee camps. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of it. I'm not good with the language or, or the names. But there was a military base or some kind of complex being built right next door. And there were the refugees living literally in the mud with these brand-new buildings right within their sight across the highway standing empty. And I don't know what has happened to that building since then. But it's pretty clear that the refugees' needs are not prioritized by the government or anyone at this point in time. And the government is very strapped for funds and resources to do anything at this point. But I'd imagine that there's lots of U.S. money going into the keeping the war going and funding military in Afghanistan? Yes. There's uh, infinite money and resources for war, the war machine, but uh, not for basic, basic human rights and human necessities of clean water and housing and education. What do the children say to you when you talk with them, Martha? Especially when you're ready to go home, what do they ask of you? They ask us to tell their stories. Hakeem has done a wonderful job. Um, his website, Our Journey to Smile, he does these wonderful little vimeos of the children, illustrating with very few words what their lives are like and what they're up against. But the young folks, the adolescents and young men and women that I live with when I'm there, they just ask me to tell the story. And so when I go out to give talks you know, regarding Dorothy and the Catholic Worker, I also include stories of what is going on in Afghanistan. They're incredibly gracious and incredibly hospitable, you know, despite all the trauma that they have gone through, but they still retain hope somehow. But the incidences of PTSD among the general population are extremely high, and you can see that in their faces. But they're so grateful to have us internationals come and share of our time with them. They just ask that we tell their stories. 
do have to be very careful about not associating with a Christian group because of the fear of proselytizing. So we have to be very careful not to mix those things up when we do travel there. Do the children say to you what they'd like to be when they grow up? Do they have that hope that far away? Yes. Some of the young people that we stayed with, some of them are studying architecture. Some want to go to law school. They have good intentions and high hopes. They want to study medicine, law, engineering, all of the things that that their country so desperately needs to rebuild it. They have a very good vision for themselves and for their country. And they also say to us, don't interfere. Come and listen and, and be supportive, but let us determine our futures for ourselves. And so there's always that question of aid dependence and allowing the people to self-actualize. So the security issue is the first and foremost. Nothing can be done when there's rampant violence and and danger. Thank you so much for your um, work that you do with your radio station. And we keep hope alive here. Um, We have a presidential election just starting to come into play. And, you know, I don't see change coming from our own Congress or from our own uh, administration. We do have the Black Lives Matter movement gearing up, and over the summer we're hoping more will happen with that. But certainly the domestic and the foreign issues are interrelated, and so we must keep going forward, and we must keep it with a clear, nonviolent purpose. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. And that was Martha Hennessy, who's a member of the Catholic Worker Movement in the United States and the granddaughter of one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement. That's all I have for you today. I'll go out with a a message for the Anarchist Book Fair coming up very soon and Jonathan is here and I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Bye for now.